All right, so the Rangers dropped game one of the Stanley Cup final. They had a chance to win it in Los Angeles, get that first game of the necessary uh, one-on-one split on the road to start the Stanley Cup final, but they weren't able to get it. They blew a two-goal lead, the uh, dreaded two-goal lead in hockey, and then they blow it in overtime when Dan Girardi uh, basically does what Dan Girardi does best and uh, turns it over and uh, gives up a, a semi-breakaway under the hash marks, and there's game one a couple minutes into overtime. And joining me today to talk about the Stanley Cup final and what went wrong in game one and what needs to go right the rest of the way is Brian Mons of WFAN, uh, producer from Mike Son, Francesa on the Fan, and on Fox Sports 1. Monzo, how's it going today? It's going just great. How are you? <laughs> you know, I feel like it's almost going better for me. I mean, I was pretty pretty distraught over the game one loss. Uh, it, it was there for the taking. The Rangers could have won. And, you know, when it gets to this point in the playoffs, I, I guess really at any point in the playoffs, the bounces are so few and far between in what determines a win and a loss that you need them to go your way. And the Rangers had them going their way. And they lost it, and they lost the game. They lost the game on the road. They lost a commanding one-game lead uh, where the, where game two could have been, you know, sort of uh, if they win, great. But if they lose, whatever, at least they're heading back to MSG 1-1. And you tweeted that you'll have trouble sleeping after game one. So have you slept at all since then? Uh, yeah, I slept. I slept plenty fine. A couple of shots of night cool. I was, I was right out. Um, I uh, wasn't that... I just knocked something down my garage. Um, it wasn't that I was uh, disappointed or sad by the loss. It was, or I was, I was mad, you know, angered because uh, the opportunity that they they really had, I considered to be a golden one, which was getting that first game and, like you said, that second game kind of being, you know, uh, you know, if you win it, great. If not, you know, no big deal either. Um, but I actually took to the surprise of a lot of people, and I was actually surprised at how many people disagreed with me or didn't see it the way I did. I actually took, despite the loss, which I know is frustrating, uh, a lot of positives out of the game. Uh, I don't, you know, after game one, I'm not sitting here thinking the series is over or, you know, thinking the Rangers have no chance. I'm actually kind of thinking the opposite. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it was a tough loss just because you had to get to not lead. That first goal at the end of the first period that the uh, Kings uh, the Kings scored kind of reminded me of that fifth goal the Canadians scored in Game Five after the Rangers tied the game. It was just it, momentum for the Rangers was gone at that point. It was all uh, with the Kings. But you know, all in all, disappointing loss. But I, I, I think there's some positives I can build off that game. Well, I feel like you are always a, you are always the optimist after the game, like after the fact. Immediately after the game, you're the one that's like, I can't, you know, I drive home silent. Um, you know, after the Canadians game three, you're, you can't sleep after the game one of the Stanley Cup final. But it seems like the next day you're fine with it. And, I mean, I guess you have to be fine with it because there's nothing you can do about it. But the fact that they had a 2 nothing lead early in the game, they had enough chances to put the game away, to, to bury the Kings, to make it a laugher, and they didn't do that. And then they get, you know, the step-on turnover, which is just – awful and then stall i don't know what the hell he's doing at the top of the circles he can't catch dowdy dowdy dangles through the whole team and scores and then the girardi turnover which was just you know an embarrassment to nhl defensemen all around the league and uh, before we get into exactly you know the the exact plays that ruined the game for them the fact that they had the game 
in hand. They they were they were outplaying the Canadians in the first period. They let that get away from them, and and sort of their game sort of drift away from them as the game went on. They played great the first period right from the get go. Everything they got on their stick, they turned around and shot it on net. Whether it's a bang bad angle shot, whether it was in the slot, whether it was at the top of the circles, they put it on net. And as the game wore on, they got away from that to the point where they weren't even getting shots on net in the third period. And it just seemed like no matter how long that game went on, they were going to lose at some point, whether it was a couple of minutes into overtime like it was or whether it was three overtimes later, the Rangers were just going to get outplayed by the Kings. And that's kind of disheartening to know that, you know, they sort of faded as the game went on in game one. Yeah, no, all, all fair points. And the reason I was, you know, the reason I was annoyed last night is just the immediate reaction to the game. It's just, you know, they could have lost that game 5-1 or they could have lost it the way they did. I still would have been uh, just as disappointed uh, as I was last night. But, you know, looking the re- the reason why I-, I woke up feeling a little better and even late last night was kind of uh, optimistic. And look, those plays you mentioned were, were awful, especially the step on turnover. Even though I didn't think that was that great of a goal, the step on turnover was brutal. And you know, getting back to step on my my favorite player of all time. <laughs> you know, late in the second period on the power play, you know, two golden opportunities to shoot the puck from the circle. It doesn't even look to shoot the puck. I, I don't even know what the, you know. Uh, at least fake the shot or, or, you know, disguise it a little bit. And he didn't even look at the net. Uh, and then, obviously, Girardi had a rough night. Uh, and Stoll, I think, uh, is just not the same player he was before the the eye injury, which, you know, sucks to say. But uh, I think that's the case. But here's what I took positive out of the game. Obviously, the first period was very positive. Obviously, the fact that one Chris played well. And, and that third period, I understand they got outshot 20-3, to three, and that's, Statistically, not great, and it's not. I mean, they, they had, you know, very they had just two great opportunities in the Rangers: the Hagelin breakaway, which he should have buried it thirty seconds ago, and the San Luis two on one, which he, he took a shot that was a good save by Quick. But out of the twenty shots the Kings took, how many of them were you actually thinking were actually going to go in? They're all from the side. They're all from the point. You know, the Jeff Carter wraparound. I guess uh, that's not really a shot on goal. He put it in front of the net, and Hagelin almost kicked it in. So, I mean, I, I understand that the play was in the Rangers' own end, and that has to change, and I think it will. Um, but I didn't look at the Kings dominating that period. Like, I understand they dominated it shot-wise and, and maybe controlled the puck more, but I thought the Rangers did a good job of holding their own and not allowing the Kings to have, you know, great scoring chance after great scoring chance. And the other positive I take from the game are the fact that all we heard about, and you talk to all these experts, Guys that I like a, a lot, Joe Micheletti and Eddie Olchuk and your buddy Pierre. Don't say Pierre. Um, Don't say Pierre. <laughs> although Pierre doesn't, you know, he won't give a pick. But, you know, these guys all made it seem like the Rangers really had no chance here unless they elevated their game to a level that, you know, doesn't even exist. You know, what I took from the game was the Rangers are going to compete in this series and have just as much of a chance for the Kings to win this. Now, obviously, that's a tough loss last night. But I think from here, the Rangers can compete here, and in certain aspects of the game, are better than the Kings. They're faster than the Kings. I think they have more defensive depth. And how about this this idea that the Kings are more physical than the Rangers? And all I saw last night was Anton Stroman take guys out <laughs> left, right. And I saw Dustin Brown on his on his rear end, you know, limping off the ice. I saw Matt Green getting taped up with his face bleeding. You saw Drew Doughty you know, on the ice if the Kreider hit him. You know, and I, you know, let's talk about toughness. All I saw was them flopping and on the ground. 
So we like the Rangers were the more physical team. So, you know, those are some positives I took from the game. And you have to assume that the Rangers are going to play better in game two. They did have a six-day layoff. You know, they did have to travel out west. You know, there were a couple things that weren't in their favor, and you had a good game out of Lundqvist. So I understand all those negatives, two-goal lead and everything. But what I take from the game is the series is not going to be, you know, steamrolling by the Kings. The Rangers are going to compete, and the Rangers have a good chance of getting back in it. Well, I agree with you, but I also think at the time when you're saying, you know, they had a six-day layoff, they're playing out west, they're playing the Kings, a team they haven't seen, if the Rangers hold on to that 2 nothing lead, if they build on that lead, or if they just win the game outright, it doesn't matter because then people are saying, oh, the Rangers were the more rested team, the Kings were the tired team. So it's almost like if they don't let those bad things happen, those defensive lapses happen, and those bad bad, bad bounces don't go against them, the, the, the narrative is completely different. And I think you know, when you look at this game, the fact that Lundqvist made 40 saves and they still lost is just like, I, I, I expect Lundqvist to have a great game every game, but he's probably not going to be at the top of his game every single game in a seven-game series, and maybe that's the one game that they let get away, and that's the one game they should have had. No, look, I agree. Look, you can't, you can't bowl too well deep. It's, you know, it's, it's not going to help you in the long run, and, you know, it, 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 it hurts, but like I said, it, they're down one nothing in the series. They're not down three nothing. They're not down even down two nothing. You know, game one is the least important game of the series uh, in any series. You know, it's just it's one game. Obviously, you have to come out Saturday night and they got to win. And there's no excuse. They have to come out and they have to play the best game they played in the playoffs so far. Win that game. Whether the score be one nothing, whether the score be five four, whether the score be eight three, they got to come out and win the game. But like I said, what I take from the game is they should be able to build on the fact that. You know, they, all they have probably heard, and they heard Vigneault talk about it, how they were getting any respect, is how the Kings are going to run over them. And that didn't happen. And, you know, maybe on the stat sheet with the shots today, they had more shots than them. But at the end of the game, I left that game thinking, all right, well, the Rangers can compete. And if they step up just a little bit, you know, and, you know, maybe hit a little more, maybe, you know, get in front of quick a little more, maybe shoot a little more, things will work in their favor. So I'm sitting here pretty, pretty confident that, you know, we'll, this will be a lifelong series, and the Rangers have just as good of a shot at the Kings to win it, despite being down 0-1. Well, you said that, you know, coming away from that game, the Rangers had a chance to compete, but not only did they have a chance to compete, they had a chance to win that game, and they look like the better team right from, you know, the opening face-off. I mean, their speed, they were killing the Kings in the corners in the offensive zone. They were dumping and chasing better than they've done all season long. They were taking shots from all angles, which is something very un-Rangers-like, which changes the game went on, and they became more complacent and were, you know, blowing on man rushes left and right. But, you know, when they had a 2 nothing lead and the Kings started to pressure them, uh, the, the forecheck started to build, maybe the Kings were just getting their legs under them, maybe it was something about playing at home, I don't really know. But you just felt like the other shoe was going to drop and you felt like I felt like that goal against, you know, on the step-on turnover was going to happen at some point. It happened to be against the guy that we've killed all season long in step-on who's, you know, put in this role of a first-line center, which you've simplified to me before he really shouldn't be a first line center and the fact that the Rangers don't have depth at that position is the reason he's there he's more of a second or third line guy but on this team in this stage at this game he's a first line center and he didn't play like it he had a terrible turnover and that goal I feel like changed the entirety of the game oh I, I absolutely agree that that goal was a, was a backbreaker because that you know changed momentum anytime you give up a goal you know late in the period in the first or second period you know, in a close game, uh, the team that scores that goal has picked up a ton of momentum going into the next period. And that's exactly what the Kings did. 
And, you know, I, I think, you know, I think if the Rangers don't give up that goal, you know, it's 2 nothing going into the second, you know, we're talking about the Rangers having a one nothing series lead here. So uh, it's a back-breaking goal. Um, it happened. The Rangers got to find a way and move on. And it's just, it is what it is. It happened, and there's no excuse. It was a bad, it was a bad turnover. He had plenty of time, you know, just to dump the puck down the ice as opposed to, yeah, that's one thing the Rangers do too much, whether it's him, whether it's Stoll, whether it's Girardi, whether it's Strawman. You know, there's this, I don't know where they learned this. It wasn't in Tortorella because he, he, you know, would sit down if they did something like this. They have this nonchalant way to get the puck out of the zone. But they try and make a cute pass or something like that. You know, when you're in your own zone, you're getting pressure against the Kings. You know, put it in the air. Get it out of the zone. Go off the boards. No reason to try and make a pass there. And that's something that's going to have to change because, you know, with the Kings' offensive talent, with all the players they have, you know, they give it turnovers in the offensive zone. You know, the Kings are going to make them pay for it more than not. That's, that's something that has to change. I don't care what player it is. Well, if Hagelinberry is, you know, more than one of his several breakaways or Rick Nash doesn't uh, decide to going to a spinorama or a toe drag, whatever the hell he's doing on a three-on-one. Maybe we're not talking about the goals the Rangers let up, which cost them the game. Maybe we're talking about, you know, Rangers win and them, you know, already splitting the series no matter what happens in the game too. But that second goal comes with Drew Doughty dangling around the entire Rangers uh, defensive core in the the defensive zone. I mean, he starts at the top of circles, goes back up around the top of the circles, takes to the slot, does a little move, comes back through, toe drags someone, and before you know it's in the back of the net. And it all started against Mark Stahl, who gave a half-ass, you know, one-handed poke check at the play. And he had been playing bad until that point in the game. Um, I remember tweeting about, you know, it sort of foreshadowed. His play earlier in the game foreshadowed what happened on that goal there. And he was as bad as he's ever been in that game. And you alluded to it earlier that he hasn't been the same player since his eye injury. And, you know, I think we're seeing that as we go on. He's getting more exposed by the better players in the playoffs. Yeah, it's, to me, it's a it's a major concern. And uh, look, he, he's been he's been physical. He was physical last night, um, but his instincts on on plays and, and his ability to replay is not uh, you know where it was you know two years ago when he was you know turning into one of the premier defensemen in the league, and now he's you know he's a second pair defenseman at best right now, and that's. Yeah, it's okay, but it's just the expectations of where he was to where he is now is obviously uh, digress as opposed to progress. So uh, we'll see what happens. You know, I, I'm, I'm, I, you know, I've been talking about this for a while. You know, come come draft and his contract's coming up the end of next year. It, it, there's a possibility they look to move him because I, I still think there's value for him in the league. You know, you know, Carolina loves those stalls, so you know, it, it, there's been no rumors. I'm not hearing anything i'm just i wouldn't be shocked if you know draft day this year that, that we may see a mark stolt carolina deal happen and just uh it might be time because he's just you know he makes a lot of money you can you know find that use that money elsewhere um but you know that's that's for another day we're talking Stanley Cup finals now but yeah definitely mark stolt of 2009 2010 is not is much better than mark stolt 2013 2014 well, towards the end of the third period there, Hagelin gets that shorthanded breakaway. After, you know, 
I gave Brian Boyle lifetime immunity from him, from me ripping him after what he's done in the previous rounds to keep them alive and keep them uh, advancing in these playoffs. And he takes that just, it just nonsensical penalty. Like, why are you slashing a stick there? It's just not needed. It wasn't even part of the play. It wasn't going to change the play. Well, to, be completely, to be completely fair, I mean, these sticks are so weak. No, I understand they're one piece composite <laughs> sticks, but like, you don't, you, there's no need to slash. I mean, that guy hitting him with a puck, it's like you're going at the defenseman who's just won the faceoff back to the point. It's like there's just no need for that. In the f- Granted, the stick probably shouldn't have broken. You know, this isn't 1994 anymore. The sticks aren't wooden. But, I mean, just it's just stupid in this day and age to do that play. No, yeah, it's horrible timing. Yeah, and again, uh, it happened to be Boyle, and they get the power play, and Haglin gets the you know the shorthanded breakaway after getting several chances by himself earlier in the game. One where he sort of got you know delayed on, where there probably could have been an interference call. One where there could have been a near hook or trip, where they said they played the puck, and the other one where he actually scored the goal. But he gets the you know he gets the breakaway there. I think he's scoring. I, I mean, I think he's going down. He's somehow putting it in the net. He doesn't. The puck goes the other way. It ends up he almost dives and kicks it in Dan Girardi style right past Lundqvist which would have just been the the worst kind of loss until we actually did lose on what was the worst kind of loss in overtime. But that turn of events in the last minute there, I mean, that's as crazy of an ending of a Stanley Cup final game as you'll see before it gets to overtime. Yeah, especially considering the Rangers were shorthanded. I mean, they, it's amazing how, how good this team is shorthanded. And, you know, it's because they have the great goaltending and they're not afraid to block shots. Their positioning is good. And they don't pass up opportunities, you know, to go down and try to put the puck in the net or create an opportunity. You know, and you have speed like Carl Hagelin. All you have to do, and he did it early in the game, just kind of, with speed like him and Kreider, you can literally just hit the puck to yourself. If you know you're faster than the guy in front of you, you just you hit the puck, you know, 20 feet, and you know you can blow by the guy and get it, and that's what he did. And that's what he tried doing late in the period. And, uh, you know, I know he's getting pressure, you know, so so he probably didn't have the time to do what he wanted to. I mean, I, I think at that point, you know, I thought a deep would have been the right move, kind of what he did against Tukarski and, uh, game four and was on the shorthanded breakaway. Um, but yeah, I mean, look, it was, it was a wild, wild turn of events there. I uh, went from haggling over almost scoring and then putting the puck in, followed by Jeff Carter skating all the way down, doing that wraparound and haggling almost kicking it again. In fact, the angle that was on TV, it looked like the puck went in, but that was, it was Henrik Lundqvist, the, uh, butt end of a stick that was in the net and looked like the puck. So, you know, there was a mere heart attack right there for me. Um, but yeah, it was a wild finish, and that's you know people still talk about how the NBA finals are good, and then they watch that. <laughs> and how you can how you can compare the two? You know, that, otherwise, that's like, is the Heat team even is the even on right now? Or what was that? Is, is the Heat Spurs even on right now? I wouldn't even. Know. <laughs> I still don't fathom how people think that you know uh, the Heat being Spurs seventy four like fifty seven in the third quarter is more entertaining than playoff hockey. <laughs> Yeah, look, it's not. I used to get bent out of shape about it, you know, the ratings and everything, and I'll still occasionally take a dig at it just for fun, but, you know, I, you know whatever. It, it, people that, you know, it's their loss for thinking that's more entertaining. I don't, I, I don't, the, I'll never. I, I think the people that get me the most is not the people that, like, care like care about it. It's the people that take their time to call your show with Mike Francesa and, you know, want to know, will the, like, will the NHL game beat the NBA ratings? It's like, who cares? Just watch what you want to watch. Right, exactly. You know, it, you know, it's a great sport. You know what's good. Uh, you know, you're getting the thrill out of it. You know, there's plenty of hardcore Ranger fans, Canadian fans, Kings fans. There's even a good portion of Islander fans somehow. 
You know, so so there's the people that I will appreciate, and, and you know the ratings are what they are. You know, you get five and a half million people watching the game; it's still a lot of people. No, I agree, and I think the problem really is, I mean, when you break it down, I mean, uh, the Canadian ratings don't count or whatever. And for hockey in the United States, I mean, you've got the Northeast, you know, you've got the tri-state area, you've got New England, and then really you have like you know the Michigan, Wisconsin, Minnesota area, and then anything after that sort of like a bonus. I mean, there's only like a few states in the whole country that actually you know, breed hockey, have youth hockey all the way through. So it makes sense. I mean, I don't know why people don't understand why the NBA does better. It's because basketball is available in all, you know, in the entire United States when hockey is only available in some of it. It just, it just, I just can't comprehend how people don't understand this by now. It also has to do with, you know, people growing up playing the sport. I mean, you could literally just go out to a park and play basketball. You know, you, you can't do that with hockey. There's yeah. thousands of dollars of equipment you have to get and, you know, it's more complex, you know, all the rules, but, and it's expensive, you know, not everybody. No, I agree, know, and I, play, I mean, so. yeah, if you're, I mean, you have three kids, if they're looking to play youth hockey, I mean, you're probably, you know, you know, <laughs> you might uh, need another job over the WFN if you want some uh, travel hockey going on in the Monzo family. Yeah, you know, I, I sold most of my equipment, so I can't even handle that. <laughs> Well, what ended up happening in that game, I mean, you look at the speed of haggling like we talked about in the third period, again, that shorthanded chance, which could have won the game with just a few seconds left. But going into the series, everyone talked about, you know, the biggest thing going for the Rangers was their speed against the LAD, which was more, you know, slow and compact and strong and big. And, you know, they'd, they'd play the corners well. They'd muck it up, grind it in the corners, but they might not be able to handle the Rangers' speed and open ice. And I've never seen the Rangers' speed look as good as it did early on in that first period. No, they, they forechecked. They kept the puck behind the net. Uh, you know, they created opportunity. They're a fast team. You know, they, they opened things up. They have, you know, a little bit of speed on each line. Uh, even uh, the great Benoit Pouliot was able to, to turn, you know, yeah. turn the Jets on and uh, break down and put it in. But yeah, they're, look, they're, they're a fast team, and there's no denying that they've, you know, put together four lines, all of which have speed on them. A couple players have, but uh, more than one player with speed on a line. Um, that maybe you know that that's got to be a tired thing to do to stay like that. But uh, you know, they got to play like that for three periods. And, you know, if they do that and. There's reason to believe they they can and will. Uh, they're going to be a, a major thorn in LA side. And the last goal, which happens to be the game winner in overtime, the danger already just embarrassment. Him falling down, giving it away. I mean, I don't know. He trips over his own well, feet. It's not like anyone made contact with him. And then his decision was, I'm just going to, you know, throw it. Not even up the boards. Not not try to get it high off the glass from my knees. I'm just going to, you know, put it right on the ice. Give a semi breakaway, and there's the game. And Dan Girardi's been, you know, to me, what Nick Swisher, what Boone Logan have been um, in this Twitter era, and he just exemplified that in game one as well as he could. I mean, McDonough bailed him out several times in in regulation. He couldn't even bail him out in overtime because of how terrible and how poor of a play that was, and it just sucks that that cost them game one. Yeah, what's most frustrating is there was a way to save that play. And he, he mentioned it after. He could have just taken that clock, backhanded into the boards in front of him, and try and regroup instead of trying to force the play out of the zone. Uh, you know, there just comes a point where, um, and I, I kind of referenced this earlier, where instead of trying to do the, the fancy little thing, you know, just do the safest play, even if that means 
you know, putting the fuck in your own, you know, your own end. And he could have just backhanded that. If he lost control, he could just backhanded it into the corner, you know, you know, got up from falling down and figured out, you know, another play, you know, even if it's been icing the puck. Um, you know, but he tried to get fancy and try and tried to do too much with it, you know, from a vulnerable position that ended up costing on. You know, he would like to see Lundqvist make that save, but it was a hell of a shot by Williams who always seemed to come through in the clutch when he had to. Well, now that uh, they're down, game, you know, one game to none, I, they have to split in L.A., I feel like, because granted, yes, the Rangers have come back from two games down before, but this team, you know, beating the Blackhawks on the road in a game seven after nearly blowing a three games to one lead. They, they've won three game sevens this year. They came back down 3-0 in the first round against the, the Sharks. They lost in the Western Conference Final the year before. They won the Stanley Cup as an eighth seed the year before. I mean, this team is battle-tested. They're playoff proven. Um, they've got Gabrick now in the mix, who's scoring goals at an alarming rate, uh, something that Rangers fans waited for him to do when he was a, a player here. And before the series, my confidence was pretty even. You know, I, I give the slight edge to the Rangers, probably only because I'm a Rangers fan, but I thought they could win this series. I predict them to win it in six. Uh, when they had a 2 nothing lead, I started envisioning, uh, you know, Henrik Lundqvist finally holding the Stanley Cup, you know, getting the monkey off his back, shutting up every idiot, everybody who thinks it's his fault they lose, every Devils fan in the world. And then, you know, 20 minutes later, the game's 2-2. They lose in overtime, and now we're facing a deficit, and everyone seems to be, uh, you know, nervous about what's going to happen in the series. But I'm still fairly confident. I'd say I'm at, like, a 3 or a 4 right now heading into Game 2. But Game 2 on Saturday night, it seems to me like it's a must-win because of how good this Kings team can be with a lead. Well, yeah, I agree. And and what works out for the Rangers' favor is they've come through in the playoffs when they've had to. And I think this is a game that they're going to look at it as uh, as close to a must-win uh, as a must-win can be because you definitely don't want to fall down uh, 0-2 to this team. You know, this is a big spot. Uh, most of the players in the team haven't, haven't been to the cup final, uh, let alone haven't been down 0-1 in the cup final. So, you know, they're all kind of in a new position. Yeah, I think this is one of those games where, you know, Longquist is going to have to just put the team on his back and say, just get me one, get me two, and I'm not going to lose this game for you. And it's very possible. We've seen it happen before. Uh, this team has won a lot of must-win games. Game seven against Philly. Uh, games, what was it, games five, six, and seven against Pittsburgh. And it's fair to say game six against Montreal was a must-win. So they've come through every time they've had them in the playoffs. I know it's early in the series, and I know going down 0-2 doesn't you know, mean you're out. But it's going to be tough to come back. I think this is a must-win. They're going to, you know, they're going to have to go out there and play better. They're going to have to go out there and win. And you know, we've seen the formula before. You know, a lot of forechecking, keep the puck in the zone, and uh, you know, finish up on your plays. And they got to get involved. That's what they did the first year yesterday. They might ever successful. They got involved. They got to the net. They they kept on the net. They forechecked. You know, when they don't get involved is is when bad things happen. That's where they lose control of the puck. And that's why the other team out shoots them twenty to three. Um, so yeah, I, I'm pretty confident going to this game. They're going to put up a good one. Well, with Henrik Lundqvist, you know, there's only a few people um, I've never said a negative thing about, and that's Derek Jeter, Mariano, post Super Bowl forty two Eli Lundqvist, and also Rick Nash, who you know sort of oddly fits into the picture. But with Lundqvist, I mean, when you look at the first goal 
it sort of you know goes over his right shoulder, gets over him, gets under the bar into the net, um, and and I blame Stepan for that. I blame him for the terrible turnover in his defensive zone. And you look at the Dowdy goal, and Lundqvist had that tucked in between his blocker and sort of his shoulder and his chest, and it sneaks in there. And then the overtime goal is not much you can do about it. I mean, you give Justin Williams the puck. In most NHL shooters, you give them the puck below the hash mark with no one around, they're going to find a way to get it in. But for as 40 saves, you know, as Lundqvist had, it almost feels like, you know, people are amazed, oh, he had 40 saves and they still lost. But I feel like he could have even played better than he did. And granted, he made a lot of miraculous saves and kept that game from getting out of hand in the third period. But we've seen Henrik Lundqvist be better, and I think he can be even better than a 40-save performance than he was in game one. Uh, I think he has to be. I mean, he has to be in this series uh, as close to perfect as he can be. And it's just... And it just doesn't matter what team you're playing. It's the Stanley Cup final. You know, your game has to be... I'm sorry, it's the Stanley Cup finals. <laughs> and I just heard it so much, it's just busted in my head. Um, his, his game has to be at a level that, you know, we have not seen yet. And he's done that for most of the playoffs. Uh, but this is now do or die time. There's no next series. Um, you know, this is the series. You know, this is where you get to raise that cup if you win four. Uh, you know, they got a taste of it in game one and just kind of how it's going to be uh, and how everybody has to play. And now he has to find a way to take his A-plus game to an A-plus-plus game. Uh, you know, and, it, it, you know, it's going to be, you know, obviously a huge challenge, but but I think this guy's been able to step up almost every challenge that's been put in front of him uh, in his nine-year career, plus you know, the Olympics and playing in Sweden. And now he's got to take his game to that next level. And every goalie does it. Charlie Quick has done it. Mark Ambrador has done it. Dominic Hoshik's done it. Uh, you know, it's, just, it's just his turn. And uh, he played A-plus level yesterday. He's got to play A-plus-plus level the rest of the series. Well, entering this series, uh, what was your confidence going into game one, and what is it now that they're down 0-1? Well, I mean, I, I don't hear you raising it. I mean, if it's out of five, Give me, a, like, I give me like a 1-10. to 10. Pre game one I, I, and after game one, I was feeling, you know, I was feeling like they were a word eighteen. You know, I felt very good going into game one, and I'm feeling just as good, if not a little better, going into game two. That's, I, I just think they they learned a lot from that game. You know, disregard the the two 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 goal deficit and lose, you know I'm losing that, but you know I think they learned a lot. I think that they're now you know. This is a smart team. They're they're not just a talented team. You know, they're well coached. They're smart. You know, they do a lot of little things a lot better than they used to. Um, you know, just even the way they play defense with the, you know, the three guys up front, the two guys up back, and the two guys attack. Something that uh, Eddie and, and Pierre brought up yesterday. Little changes like that that they they, they will look at the tape and realize they have to do. Uh, they do that with this team. They they, they make adjustments. They teach their players. Uh, something they haven't done in the past. They just had, you know, six players they trusted, and they let them have to go go out there and do everything. Um, so they're gonna come out and play a better game, and uh, you know, I'm not wagering on it, but I, I would not be shocked at <laughs> all if they come out. <laughs> they come out with a with a win. I'm surprised you're not wagering on it because uh, that would seem like something you would do. But you know, we talked after the Canadian series, and I didn't ask you this, which is kind of surprising. But I think this is the fourth. I'm pretty sure this is the fourth calendar year we've been doing Rangers podcasts, and it always seemed like, you know, this team, you were just like, they're in the playoffs, it, get, it extended our hockey season, it gave us something to care about, something to watch, but it never felt like they'd get to this point. Even like two years ago when they played the Devils and they're in the Eastern Conference Final, it almost felt like 
it never felt like they're that close to being at the cup. And now that they're in the cup final, did you ever think that this team was capable of getting to that point? I mean, after game four of the Penguins series, I mean, I, I wasn't sure where the hell they were. Um, <laughs> but, you know, once they got, you know, once they got in the, in the conference final, you know, I really hated that matchup against the Canadians. You know, I felt more, yeah, I guess your point's right. I felt more confident about that this team being a contender than I did about the team two years ago. Um, I felt like that team was just getting by. Uh, you know, uh, just based on, on, you know, hard work and a couple players playing well and one coach standing on his head. You know, this team has four lines that contribute. The goalie's playing well and they have, you know, some solid defensemen. And they're, like I said, they're an educated team. They have a game plan. They, you know, everybody seems to be on the same page. So uh, I think this team has hit that elite level. You know, now you want to see them finally uh, win the whole thing. And uh, before I let you go, you know, Belmont Stakes this week, first triple crown winner in forever. I know you're scouring over that card uh, up and down. Is the California Chrome going to do it? You know, it's 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 the hardest thing. It might be the hardest thing to do in all sports uh, to win this, you know, three races in five weeks, you know, different competition every time you race, different tracks, different dirt, different distances. Uh you know, horses from the Kentucky Derby can take the freakness off, you know, rest, you know, do their workouts, and then come to the uh, Belmont uh, a lot fresher than the horse that's going for the Triple Crown. Uh, but this horse is just, he, he's, he, he looks superior. He, he looks like he can take on any challenge. Uh, he's got a great story behind him with the owners and the, and the trainer. Um, and looking at the rest of the field, I mean, look, there's a lot of good horses, and anything can happen in a mile and a half. You know, but if he's able to kind of control the pace, uh, you know, to get close to the lead, if not on the lead, and clip off, you know, reasonable fractions, 24, 25 seconds for a quarter mile, I'm not sure there's a horse that can catch him down the stretch here. Now, we've heard this before. Everybody thought Big Brown was going to win. Everybody thought uh, Smarty Jones was going to win it. You know, he lost it for the wrong reason because the jockeys hated uh, his connections and trying to and, and really screwed that horse, but uh, he's won those two first races for a reason. He's obviously got you know uh, some unbelievable determination and, and unbelievable heart, and he's got a good, just smart jockey riding him. Uh, I think if things break his way, and that's what has to happen in a mile and a half, uh, we're going to be looking at the first Triple Crown winner in you know what is it, thirty six, thirty seven years, or whatever the number is. All I know is it's a lot longer than I've been alive. Well, I know you said uh, earlier that this was like the best card you've ever seen. What's going to happen at Belmont? And when you look at the when you look at the race and you look at the Triple Crown, I feel like you need the perfect storm events. I, I guess obviously you do because it hasn't happened in so long to win the Triple Crown. But you need the you know the right horse against the right competition and the right weather conditions. And it seems like that might happen here. And, uh, you know, for California Chrome, is this just the perfect storm? I mean, has there been other horses that were technically better, but he's just run into the, the best, you know, weather track combinations against the, you know, a weaker field, or is this field that good that he's just having that superior of, of races against him? No, the field's good, but he's been, I mean, we talked, you know, we discussed it, you know, through texting before the Kentucky Derby. Like, he was the favorite, and he was the favorite for a reason. And he went out and, and had a tremendous performance. And, you know, at first with his preakness, I actually... 
didn't love his previous run. In fact, it got me a little nervous. Um, but after I walked the race half a dozen times, so at least the stretch run, you know, it made me feel a little better. Like the, the jockey was just kind of doing enough to win and not overexerting the horse, like not, pre- you know, not feeling like the race was ever in danger that he had to, you know, overdo it. He kind of just did enough just so he could win, not, uh, overdo it. So the horses in this field are tough. You know, I think there's probably four, maybe even five, you know, that could pull off the upset. Um, but yeah, a lot of, a lot of things have broken right. Uh, he's gotten good weather. He's worked out well. He hasn't been sweating. He's taken to Belmont. Um, travel hasn't been an issue. Uh, you know, and, and the only thing at this point you have to worry about, and look, he can get beaten down the stretch and it'll be disappointing. You know, but if you finish second and gets caught in the last 100 yards, it's just uh, another reason why this is a very hard thing to do. Uh, the one thing that'll be ultra disappointing is if what happens, the same thing happens to him that happened to War Emblem, uh, you know, over a decade ago. And he, he jumps out of the gate and he goes to his knees and is immediately out of the race and, you know, can never really get back in it. So, you know, pending a clean break out of the gate, uh, it's going to be, I think there's going to be a 15 to 20 second window, uh, late Saturday afternoon before the Stanley Cup finals start, uh, where he's going to be down the stretch and he's going to be close to or on the lead and it's going to be ultra exciting and either he's going to win it or he's just going to lose it. But either way, it's going to be something that's going to be a lot of fun to have a lot of people watching. Well, when you look at these odds right now, I mean, minus 130 for California Chrome, I mean, that just seems ridiculous. Uh, you know, going into a triple crown potential winning race for a horse minus one thirty. I mean, that's like, that's like your Bruins. You know, minus one half against uh, Buffalo earlier this year. <laughs> yeah, I mean, look, the problem is with betting is that you're going to get a lot of people that bet on that horse that have never seen him run and are just betting the name. So that's going to consistently drive his odds down. I mean, he's sixty cents to the he's sixty cents to the dollar right now on the morning line, I and mean, that's. Honestly, that's a horrible bet. You know, I, I, you cannot make money unless you're betting millions of dollars on him uh, in win bet. You know, so the smart thing to do is to put him in some exotic on top if you're going to make some money, uh, you know, with some other horses, some of the longer shots. Or you try and beat him, and you'll find a horse with some good prices that could beat him. You know, the problem I have is, you know, I, I, there are one or two horses with good odds that I think have a chance but it's really going to bother me if I bet on them and then I'm watching them down the stretch and it's that horse I bet on in California Chrome. It's like, do I want to win like 80 bucks or do I want to see a triple crown in person? You know, it's yeah. a dilemma, you know? So, um, well, I almost feel like everyone's rooting for the triple crown. Right. I mean, like I said, like I really like the 11 horse tonalist. Uh, I love the connection. Is that, I love uh, 10 the to one right now. Yeah. I, I, I was thinking about that horse. You know, Christoph Clement's a great trainer. Joel Rosario is probably the best jockey in the East, or maybe the best jockey in North America at this point. Um, you know, he kind of likes to be a close to run the lead, which is typically very good for the Belmont, uh, for the Belmont Stakes. You know, so I think, and I'm not sure we've seen the best of him. So I think that's a great win bet. You know, but I, I don't know if I want to see him win. You know, so it's, you know, so what I will probably do is play a couple of exactos with Chrome. Tonalist, and I'll probably try and find a couple of really deep long shots, a couple of 30 to ones. You know, maybe Sam Rott, who's run pretty well. You know, Wicked Strong is going to have decent odds. 
Yeah, um, he's. A, I mean, Wicked Strong is only uh, what four to one right now. I mean, he's right there. Yeah, I. I'll, I, I the reason look, he's got a huge shot. He's a deep closer. Um, you know, but if he gets too far behind, I don't think he's able to catch anybody. And I hate his jockey, Rajiv Mirage. I call him Rajiv Money Burner. You know, it's just, just I, jockey I never have luck with. So uh, the horse has a, a lot of talent, but you know, any one of these horses, you know, can get lucky and get a good ride, but. You know, if California Chrome controls the pace, you know, he sits right off the lead or on the lead, you know, that stretch run, those 25, you know, seconds only that they turn until they get to the finish line, it's going to be, it's going to be wild. You know, you just pray that, you know, nobody gets hurt. <laughs> you know, nobody does, you know, nobody has the unfortunate misfortune that Barbara had a couple of years ago in Freakness, you know, and takes a bad step. But no, it's going to be, uh, you know, and NBC is doing a, a really good job here of, you know, getting the Belmont to go off around 6.52 and have face-off of the Rangers-Kings uh, around 7.30. I mean, they're going to have a lot of viewers for both of them. So, big day for NBC on Saturday. Well, going into the uh, into the Derby, I, I was at the bar, and I'm texting you trying to get last-second bets in, and I'm like, you know, what do you think of this horse? What do you think of this horse? And you're just telling me all along, you know, just chrome all the way. And I just I couldn't – I like the story behind Chrome. I like the name. I like the owners. I like you know what they did to get to this point, not knowing much about racing. You know, taking money out of the retirement fund to buy the horse, and I wanted Chrome to win, but there just wasn't money backing it. And now I look at the field here, and you know I can't bet Chrome because minus one thirty. I'm not about to put minus one thirty on a horse as if it's like you know the Bruins minus one and a half or the Miami Heat. So I look at the you know the rest of the field and what are you know two or three two or three horses I should be looking at if I'm trying to you know make a bang for a buck and get lucky here. Yeah, and what's what's disappointing about that, that Kentucky Derby bet is he'll never get two and a half to one on California Chrome ever again. So it was a golden opportunity to make some coin. Um, well, look, the three horses that I like, uh, I like Toneless, the 11 horse. Um, you know, I talked to somebody that told me that that's more involved with the the, uh, the actual being at the track than I than I am. That told me that this horse is running uh, just off the charts right now, and he's probably going to bet the most money he's ever bet on a horse race and that horse to win. Um, so there's a lot of a lot of people really like the way Tonalist looks. Uh, Wicked Strong, who I mentioned earlier, um, has a big shot, but I don't like the jockey as I mentioned. Right on Curlin, placed in the Preakness, was coming down the stretch of California Chrome. But like I said, after watching that a little uh, a few times. It almost looked as though Chrome was just toying with them and, you know, wasn't really getting into it down the stretch and just kind of did enough to win. Uh, if you're looking for a, a little bit of a price horse here, you know, you're getting Samrot at 20 to 1 in the morning line. I see it at 32 to 1 right now. So maybe it's changed. It's 20 on the morning line. Uh, you know, he's finished fifth in the Kentucky Derby. He's done nothing wrong before that. You know, I just don't like that name, though. I feel like that name just like, uh, yeah. Yeah, two A's back to back is always weird. Yeah, it just um, looks weird. It's like, what, what, what is that? Yeah, you've got. Look, if you want my my best bet beside of California Chrome, the eleven horse totalist. That's there's going to be a lot of value there. Well, I and look at this right now. Chance. I feel like I already put money on General A Rod. He cost me, but it's like A Rod. It's like how it's A Rod. I mean, who who else goes by A Rod except for Alex Rodriguez? And then there's Metal Cow, who you know who cost me also in the last race. So. Um, you know, thirty to one on General A Rod, twenty five to one on Metal Count. Any shot there? Uh, look, General A Rod likes to go to the lead, but 
persistence is way too much. I, I just, you know, I, why they continue to put this horse in races that are over seven furlongs uh, or seven days of a mile, uh, same thing. You know, it just absolutely makes no sense to me. This horse is a, could be a, a phenomenal sprinter uh, in his future, and they continue to put him in these route races that he acts, he just gets clobbered in because he just doesn't, you know, he gets, you know, he's a, he's a speed horse. He gets to the lead, you know, but he also has distance limitations. So uh, I'd be shocked if Tenelier Rod wins this. Um, metal count to me is bred and runs much better on a turf uh, than he does in the dirt. Another one that I have no idea uh, why they're being. Now, obviously, they will, you know, they think maybe he can handle the distance, uh, you know, and catch a really fast pace and try and come closing late. But this horse, if you look at some of his best runs, they've been on synthetic or turf. You know, I don't know why they're not. There's, there's great turf racing, the Manhattan, you know, that, that day. You know, high-stakes turf racing that he'd probably be much better suited for. So why are they taking a shot to this? Uh, you know, those looking for glory and a lot of money. But I don't think either of those, those horses, unfortunately for you, uh, you know, <laughs> will make much of a uh, difference. Now, you know, it's sports racing. Anything can happen. Yeah. You know, but just based on looking at Know, how this race is going to play out and playing it out of my head, um, I'd be shocked to see the one of those horses even even come close to the board. Well, when you look at Saturday, I mean, this is like your goal. I mean, the Rangers are in the Stanley Cup final, first time since 1994, 20 years ago. You've got the triple crown potentially happening 30 minutes before the puck drops for a Rangers Stanley Cup final game. Right, and then there's also there's 10 stakes. Belmont took their 10 best races, including the Derby. Yeah, I mean, I know you have three kids born, but this together, must, this must be like as good as a fourth child being born for you. Oh no, I mean, Palace Malice is running in the Met Mile. He won the Belmont Stakes last year, so I mean, this is just you know. So what I had to do is to really divulge here is because the Belmont Stakes is going off at six fifty-two. Right after the race, I'm going to get to my car as soon as I can. I'll have my iPad and I have the NBC Sports app. That so thing I'll crashes a lot, though. I'll just warn you right now. Yeah, well, I, I've been, I've, I've tested it out. You know, if it doesn't work well on my iPad, I can watch it on my iPhone. All right. Um, which works better on. So I'm, I'm prepared either way. And what are you gonna watch that on, on the ride home back to? New I'll Jersey? watch on the ride home if we get back, you know, midway through the second. All right, that's not bad. That's not terrible. Hopefully, you win some money though at the Belmont, because you know. Yeah, otherwise it'll be a devastating. Night. I mean, the worst thing Rangers, is like Rangers, Rangers lose two to one in overtime. Yeah. Not so much. You go out there. Chrome loses, the Rangers lose like six nothing, and Janger already like just gets lit up, and and you know whoever I don't even know if Talbot's going to be dressing next game, but it could be a, it could be potentially the best day of your life aside from anything family related or the worst day of your life. Yeah, I'm preparing for the worst. Yeah, <laughs> well, well, hopefully, uh, hopefully you get a game to win. Hopefully, Chrome gives you the triple crown because. You know, as a horse racing addict like you are, you know, you deserve to see it. Uh, you deserve a Rangers win after what happened in game one. And maybe you throw the Yankees in against the Royals, a little three-team, little three-thing, uh, three-action parlay there. I know. Maybe, maybe the Yankees can hit more than a single. I mean, that will be huge. <laughs> All right, Mods. Well, we'll talk after game two, and uh, hopefully we're celebrating a, a game two win and a triple crown at the same time. Absolutely.